Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. We come this evening to a consideration of the last four verses in the ninth chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Romans, verses 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Now, clearly, we come here to a new subsection in this ninth chapter of the epistle. You will recall that in our analysis of it at the beginning and in our subsequent uh, analyses as we've come to the various subsections, we have indicated all along that the main argument comes to an end at the end of verse 29. Now, what the epistle does here in these verses that are now before us is to draw a conclusion or to give a summary of the entire argument that he has been deploying and working out. And he introduces that with his familiar formula, what uh, shall we say then? In other words, in the light of all this, what do we now say? What is the position at which we have arrived? That's his method. It's a very logical method. It's a very clear method. And it is, of course, the outstanding characteristic in the writings of this particular apostle. Now, it's important that we should realize that he's here drawing a conclusion not only with respect to what has immediately gone before. Here is the conclusion drawn from the whole of the chapter, and especially from what he has been arguing so closely and cogently from verse 6. So it is a drawing together of the whole argument, a general conclusion from the statement of the whole chapter. Now, you notice that in verses 30 and 31, he just makes a statement of the conclusion. He puts the facts before us. And then in verses 32 and 33, he gives an explanation of the facts. If you like, you can subdivide that further by saying that in verse 32, he gives the explanation and supports it in verse 33, as is his custom, by a quotation from the scripture. Very well, you see, he's still methodical and still puts his case before us in a very clear and logical manner. 
Well, now then, the first thing we've got to do is to look at the facts. He says, very well, in the light of all this, the position we see can be stated in this way. And it is, of course, this most astonishing and surprising and astounding thing. The very thing which, as he has been reminding us, the prophets had prophesied would happen, has actually taken place. It was given to him to be living at a time when the fulfillment of prophecy was evident. All who had gone before uh, simply had the prophecies. But everybody living at the time that the apostle lived were in an age and in a day when these terrible things, these incredible things almost, which had been prophesied and predicted by the prophets, are actually coming to pass. What are they? Well, here's the first. That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. That's the first fact. Of course, we've seen that already. He's really put it in verse 24, where he says, Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. That was, in a, in a sense itself, uh, a summary and a drawing of a conclusion. But he's buttressed it and supported it by the quotations that we've been considering. So he again now then, having established it from every conceivable standpoint, from the standpoint of argument and logic, then driving it right home with his quotations, once more he draws this conclusion and here it is. Now, let's look at the statement. It's unfortunate that the... Uh, Authorized version has referred to the Gentiles. It's, it's not in the original. The original has that Gentiles, not the Gentiles, because when you read the Gentiles, you might come to the conclusion that all the Gentiles were believers, but they were not, of course. All he's anxious to say is that we are confronted by this astounding fact that Gentiles, even if there were but one, it would be an astonishing thing, but there are more than one, but Gentiles, have, uh, which followed not after righteousness, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. So what he's saying in general is that the position before us is that Gentiles are in the church and Jews are out. Not all Jews again, of course, because there was a remnant, as he's been telling us. But he's speaking in broad terms that looking at the church as a whole, what you see is Gentiles rather than Jews. Very well. But he is not content uh, with uh, merely uh, leaving it at that. He, he, uh, he elaborates. And of course the elaboration is not only important, but it's extremely interesting. The Gentiles or Gentiles, of whom he says the characteristic is, that they followed not after righteousness. And uh, there's no need to be in any trouble about that because in the very first chapter, from uh, verse 18 onwards, he gave us a most terrifying description as to the kind of life that was being lived by the Gentiles. And we went into it in great detail. The, one of the most terrifying and awful passages in the whole of Scripture. Well, there they were, far from following after righteousness. They were living a life that was godless, 
that was vile, polluted, sinful. Language almost fails in an endeavor to describe it. But here, of course, he is referring not merely to the kind of life which they were actually living and saying that it was the most unethical and immoral and amoral kind of life. He is also saying this, that they were not a bit concerned about their relationship to God. They were not seeking to be right with God. That's the important point. Over and above the fact that it was a bad life. The terrible thing about the life of those pagans, those Gentiles, was that they were without God, as Paul puts it to the Ephesians, without God in the world. Or, as he puts it elsewhere so plainly, they were worshipping idols. They were utterly unconcerned about the only true and living God and their relationship to him. So when he says that the Gentiles were not following after righteousness, he means that not only were they living this awful life, but it had never occurred to them that they ought to be concerned about their relationship to God. They were not aware of the wrath of God against sin. They were not aware of the judgment. They were not aware of their precarious position. They were completely unconcerned about the need of being reconciled unto God and they were doing nothing at all about it. They were indeed, as again the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, 1, they were dead in trespasses and sins. They had no spiritual life at all. So this whole question of how can a man be right and just with God, that never occurred to them. They were not interested in it and were doing nothing about it. Very well. Yet he says this is the astonishing thing. That Gentiles who are in that state and condition and position have attained to righteousness. Now this is the most important point. And again, uh, I'm sorry that I have to criticize the authorized version translation at this point. They shouldn't have translated it as attained unto righteousness. Now, I want to call your attention to this. You'll notice that in the next verse he uses, at least we've got in this authorized translation, the same word again. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Yeah, you've got the word attained in both the verses. But in the original, you have not got the same word. And it is important that we should draw the distinction between the two. The word that we have here should really be translated as apprehend. It is even stronger than that. It means to take eagerly, to seize. It's very interesting. The New English Bible, which has noticed the point about Gentiles, that it isn't the Gentiles, but Gentiles, it's noticed that all right, but then it goes on to translate like this. That Gentiles who made no effort after righteousness, nevertheless achieved it. Which, of course, is entirely wrong. It's even worse than attained. Because it gives us the impression that as the result of their efforts, they achieved it. That's the last thing the apostle wants to say. Indeed, he's saying the exact opposite of that. No, the correct translation is here. 
Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have apprehended righteousness, have uh, taken eagerly and have seized, laid hold upon this righteousness, which is, as he says, even of that, a righteousness which is of faith. Now there is his statement with regard to these Gentiles. They were quite unconcerned. They were not interested. They were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. They hadn't got the covenants without God in the world, never giving a thought to these things at all, just living that sinful, evil, vile life. And yet, when they heard the presentation and the preaching of this way of salvation in Christ Jesus, they eagerly embraced it. And as you noticed in that reading of ours just now from the 13th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, that is precisely and literally what happened as this apostle and others went round preaching and presenting the gospel. The Jews, you see, as we shall see, were rejecting it, but we were told there that the Gentiles were pleased. They were, they were delighted at this, and they rejoiced in this very fact. When the Gentiles heard this, says Acts 13.48, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Very well, there then is the first half of this statement of fact which the Apostle is putting before us in his conclusion. But then in verse 31 we come to this sad and tragic contrast. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, here, you see, is the thing that the Apostle has kept on telling us, the thing that was breaking his heart. This is the thing that caused him his great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart, that Israel, of all people, should be outside the church. Why? Well, because, he says, they actually were following after the law of righteousness. Now, the following is the same word in birth. It really means to pursue. Following is not quite strong enough. They were pursuing it, avidly, eagerly. That's the real meaning of the word in both the verses, 30 and 31. But the point he's emphasizing is, that, and again the New English Bible puts this idea of eager pursuit into 31, but doesn't put it in 30, though it's exactly the same word. However, it certainly does need to be emphasized here in verse 31. The characteristic of the Jew was that he was indeed very much concerned about this question of righteousness, and he was pursuing it with great eagerness. But he says, they pursued after the law of righteousness, by which he means this. They were pursuing righteousness in terms of the law. It seems to me that that is the only meaning which can be easily and rightly and comfortably attached to this statement. The authorities have argued and differed a great deal about this. But to me, it seems quite obvious, especially from the end of the verse and from the whole context, that the apostle is thinking here of the law of Moses, not some general law of righteousness. The Jews were not interested in a general law of righteousness. The Jews 
were interested in the Mosaic law because they believed that observance of the Mosaic law was not only the high road to righteousness, but the only road to righteousness. So when he says that they were pursuing the law of righteousness, he means they were pursuing this goal of righteousness by means of and through the keeping of the law of Moses. And that, as we know full well, was the simple truth about Israel, about the Jews, the same people. Israel and the Jews are the same people. He uses the terms interchangeably and will go on doing so, as we shall see, so that any attempt to differentiate between Israel and Jews is utterly unscriptural. I say that simply because there is a popular cult which does that very thing without any scriptural warrant whatsoever. Well, now, here is the truth, then, about these people, that they were pursuing eagerly to be right with God, and they were doing so by trying to keep and persuading themselves that they did keep and had kept the law of Moses. But, says the apostle, they haven't succeeded. Israel, which eagerly followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Now, then, the word here may be rightly translated as attained. Or better would be, did not arrive at. Same thing. Did not attain, did not arrive at. You see the importance now of showing the difference between these two words. The apostles deliberately didn't use the same word in verse 30 as he did here. You see what he says rightly about the Gentiles in verse 30 is that when they heard that message about righteousness in Christ, they apprehended it. And they avidly and eagerly laid hold upon it. The Jews, on the other hand, said, there's the goal, the keeping of the moral law, the keeping of the law of Moses. As long as we have that as our goal, and as long as we do that, we have attained unto righteousness, and we've satisfied God. So here they are, running down the road, as it were, trying to arrive at the goal of righteousness. But, says the apostle, they haven't reached the goal. They haven't got there. They've fallen short of it. Now, of course, he's saying nothing new here. The early chapters, the first four chapters, were devoted to an absolute proof of that. But here, for the sake of this particular argument, to show why the Jews are outside, he puts it in that summary manner once more. Very well, they've not reached the goal. They've not attained, they've not arrived at this law and the fulfillment of this law. Now, the words of righteousness are not in the best manuscript. That doesn't matter. It's implied, and that is, of course, the thing the apostle has got in his mind. Now, as I say, the apostle, especially in chapter 2, demonstrated this very plainly and very clearly. He says, uh, you've been relying on the fact that you were possessors of the law, and that you had a kind of knowledge of the law. You have thought that because God gave the law to you, that that automatically puts you right. But he says it isn't he that knows the law that is uh, just with God, it's the man who does it. You see, he starts off in chapter 2, you remember, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, and this is the Jew, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things, and so on. And his whole argument is that a mere possession of the law doesn't justify. It is the man who, who does the law is the man who is justified 
with God. And he works that out in great detail in that second chapter. Well, now here is the whole tragedy then of the Jew, that in spite of their great concern about this, in spite of the fact that they had persuaded themselves that they had attained it, and they did that, you remember, in this way, it's the way that our Lord exposes in the Sermon on the Mount, where he contrasts the righteousness as defined by the Pharisees with the true righteousness as is defined in the law of Moses itself. They'd been sidetracking the law of Moses. They'd been drawing that artificial distinction between doing a thing actually in practice and having it in your mind. And so our Lord was able to convince them all of sin. They'd missed the spiritual character of the law. However, the apostle has put it all quite plainly to us in uh, chapter 7, where he says this, you remember, in verse 9, I was alive without the law once. That was when he was a typical Jew. That was when he was a Pharisee. That was when he hadn't realized the spiritual character of the law. I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, when the Holy Spirit really opened my eyes to the nature of the law, then sin revived and I died. And he was completely helpless and hopeless. Well, what he says about himself in chapter 7, he says is now true of all these people. So we are confronted by this amazing and astonishing position that the people who never gave a single thought to God and justification and being right with God are right with God. Whereas the people to whom the biggest thing in life in a sense was religion and being right with God are not right with God. Now that's the statement of fact that he puts before us in verses 30 and 31. And, of course, he lets us into the secret at the same time. You see, he throws it in there at the end of verse 30. Even the righteousness which is of faith, there's the key. And he was so concerned about it, he couldn't restrain himself, obviously. Throws it in, even in the statement of fact. In other words, the reason why the Jews did not attain unto the law of righteousness, the goal of righteousness which they thought could be attained by the observance of the Mosaic law, was the point that is stated so clearly by the Apostle James in his epistle in the second chapter and in the tenth verse. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. That's the trouble with the law. The law demands absolute perfection. It makes no allowance at all. To be 99.999% correct is not enough. If there is any defect, one is totally condemned. So that was the reason why the Jews had never attained unto this goal of righteousness, which was the big thing in their lives. They used to boast of it. They used to contrast themselves with the Gentiles, the dogs, the pagans, the outsiders. They were the people of God and they were right with God and these others were utterly hopeless. Yet the fact is, says the apostle, we look at the Christian church, we see the outsiders in and the people who ought to be in outside. Now our Lord, of course, had said exactly the same thing. He had told the same people that the day would come when they'd see Abram and Isaac and Jacob and the Gentiles in the kingdom of God and they themselves outside. It's one of the great themes of the New Testament. 
Well, very well, the apostle is summing it up, and there he puts the fact before us. Now, let's be careful that we've got quite clearly in our minds his great argument. He has set out in this chapter to face this very position. The question is, has the word of God failed to take effect? In verse 6, not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It seemed to be that, didn't it? We've seen that. The apostle's answer is, that isn't so. The word of God has taken effect. But what the word of God has said is that the Jews are going to be out and the Gentiles are going to be in, speaking generally. So he reminds them of the fact once more. Well, now then, having dealt with that, which is the simplest part of this matter that's before us at the moment, we now come to what many people have found to be extremely difficult, which is my general division, second division, namely the explanation of this extraordinary fact, which he puts before us in verses 32 and 33, and introduces with his word, Wherefore? In other words, why is this the position? And he proceeds to give his answer. Because, he says, they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. And then this quotation uh, to prove, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written. Now a very important and interesting question arises here. Why is it that the Gentiles are in and the Jews are out? Or, still more particularly, why is it that the Jews are out? That's the question. Why is it that these people, whose great business in life was, in a sense, righteousness and to be right with God, are not right with God, and are outside the kingdom, fulfilling the prophecy of our Lord, which you remember he said, the kingdom, he said to the Jews, shall be taken from you and given to a nation bearing forth the fruit thereof. And that prophecy was verified and fulfilled in the Christian church. There is the church, mainly Gentile, with but a remnant of Jews. Here is the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God in its form as the Christian church. Well, now the question is, why are these Jews Outside, though they were seeking it so much. He says the answer is, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Well now, I say there is a great problem here to people. What is the problem? Well, what many don't hesitate to say at this point is this. That here now the apostle proceeds to contradict himself. And to contradict everything that he's been saying up until this point in this ninth chapter of his epistle to the Romans. They say this is the position. From verse 6 to the end of verse 29, he has been arguing and repeating and showing from different angles that salvation is entirely dependent upon the sovereignty of God. And he's used that amazing illustration of the clay and the potter in order to make it absolutely clear that man has got nothing at all to do with it. He's told us that the difference between Jacob and Esau is something that was determined in the womb before they were born and could do either right nor wrong. He has said it is entirely of God who will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy and uh, whom he wills he hardens. 
So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Verse 16. Now that's been his great point. Yet here they say, he suddenly comes to us and he says, what decides whether a man is in the kingdom or not is the way in which he seeks it. What depends whether a man is saved or not is whether he has faith or not, whether he believes or not. So after all, it is a man's faith that saves him and not the sovereignty of God in his electing choice. Now then, that's the question that is before us. Is the apostle contradicting himself or isn't he? There are two ways in which people have tried to solve this problem or to resolve it. The first is, is to say, oh no, we do believe in God's election. We do believe that God elects people into salvation. But they say, obviously, in the light of what the apostle is saying here, his electing grace is conditioned by his foreknowledge. He only elects and save, saves those whom in his foreknowledge he has seen are going to believe and exercise faith. You see, there's no other possible solution. It's said there. Why didn't they attain? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. Whereas we are told about the Gentiles that they have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. The, right, the, the, the Gentiles exercised faith. They believed, therefore they're saved. The Jews didn't believe, didn't exercise faith. They're outside. Well, they say there's only one explanation. You can only reconcile all he said from 6 to 29 with what he's saying here by saying that obviously his election is based upon his foreknowledge. He elects those whom he sees and knows are going to believe the gospel. That's one way of, that men have chosen in an attempt to resolve this apparent problem. But then there is another, and this is the characteristic teaching of the Lutherans. Now you notice I say Lutherans and not Martin Luther, because Martin Luther didn't teach it, but Lutherans have taught it. The people who followed him, and especially those who followed him by about a century, and modern Lutheranism, they put it like this. They say, yes, it is God alone who can do and must do the saving. Man can't save himself, they say. They say this idea that a man's faith saves him is wrong. The Lutherans denounce that. But this is what they say. God must do the saving. But nevertheless, man has the power, a negative power, by which he can resist or refuse to be saved. It isn't man's faith that saves him ever, but man has got the negative power and capacity of refusing to allow God to save him. There isn't much difference, is there? And yet there is a difference. Of the two, as I think we shall see, the Lutheran is a little bit nearer to what I suggest is the truth in this matter. But still it is, of course, grievously wrong. Well, now those have been the two ways in which men have attempted to resolve this problem. So that you see it comes to this. The question that is before us is the relationship between the sovereignty of God and men's responsibility. And really this is the first point at which that problem has been raised in this chapter. It shouldn't have been raised by us before that. 
I've had to do so because I know you are mine, some of you. But actually the apostle doesn't put it before us until we come to this particular point. This is the logical point at which it really comes in. So we've got to face it. Well now, how do we do so? Well, I start by putting it like this. My first answer would be that uh, we must not assume a contradiction in the teaching of the great apostle. Now, the two professors to whom I've referred more than once in dealing with this chapter, Professors Dodd, C.H. Dodd, and William Barclay, of course, they don't hesitate to say that. They have no trouble at all in problem quite simple. Paul contradicts himself. There it is. They, they, they get rid of the whole difficulty in a very simple manner. Their statement more or less is that after all Paul was human like the rest of us. And everybody makes a mistake sometimes. And uh, that he was in a real difficulty here. In such a difficulty, well, he blunders out of it as it were by blankly contradicting himself in the course of one chapter as it were. Well now then, why do I refuse to accept that as the way out of the problem? Well, here are some of my answers. One, that to say that, of course, immediately means that you don't believe that the Apostle Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote these words. You can't say that he contradicts himself and still believe in inspiration. Because the Holy Spirit does not contradict himself. And he never makes a mistake. Well, of course, the two professors don't believe in inspiration. That's no trouble to them. But if you do say that you believe that this is the inspired word of God, and if you agree with the Apostle Peter that the writings of this Apostle Paul are to be put in the same category as the Scriptures, well, then you simply cannot say that Paul was contradicting himself because you immediately involve the Holy Spirit in the contradiction. That ought to be more than enough for us. But I can give you some further reasons. Even if I didn't believe that, I couldn't accept this idea of contradiction simply in terms of my feeling that it's a grave injustice to the mind of the great apostle. I do not regard the Apostle Paul even as a man, as one who is capable of contradicting himself so blatantly in the same context. With due respect to them, I have a higher opinion of the Apostle than his two modern critics. They are in a superior position. They understand all, and they just patronizingly feel a bit sorry for the Apostle blundering into a contradiction. I say quite apart from inspiration, I find it inconceivable that a man of this ability and this logical acumen could be capable of putting in at the end of a mighty logical argument something that contradicts the whole thing. It's inconceivable, merely on the human level, without going to the realm of inspiration. But thirdly, and this to me is another very important argument, the proffered explanation is much too easy. It takes the mystery out of the scriptures. Now, that's a very good principle, that which we must always bear in mind. Never adopt an explanation of an apparent difficulty or impasse, which makes it too easy. Let's always remember that the scriptures are profound, that these matters are not simple and easy. And this explanation is much too easy. There's no mystery left. 
You don't end by saying great is the mystery of godliness or what the apostle himself will tell us at the end of chapter 11. So I reject it for that reason also. But further, my fourth reason for rejecting it is this. That really, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't get me out of my difficulty. How? Well, in this way. If the real explanation of the fact why the Jews are outside the church is that they did not believe the gospel when it was preached to them, that they trusted to justification by works instead of justification by faith, if that is the real and the sole explanation of the fact that they are outside, well then I ask in the name of conscience and of heaven, why did the apostle write all he wrote from verse 6 to verse 29? He must be a fool. Why say all that if it's got nothing to do with it and if it's wrong? If this is the explanation, this is such a simple explanation. All he needs to say is this, well, unfortunately, I'm experiencing this great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart over the fact that my kinsmen are outside. I would myself almost be accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. But this is a tragedy. They're outside simply for this reason, that they've been trying to justify themselves by works instead of believing the gospel by faith. And that's all he'd have had to say. It's enough. But he said all this other thing with the involved argument so you see, it seems to me if you take that approach to this problem, you don't so much say that the apostle is contradicting himself as that he's a lunatic. That he's brought in this tremendous stuff from 6 to 29, which is completely irrelevant and has got nothing to do with the question at all. He's creating a difficulty for himself and then has to go on and contradict himself. Well, as I say, common sense dictates that the men like the apostle would never do that. He'd never put in something that's unnecessary and then land himself in trouble and have to contradict himself to get out of it. The obvious thing to do is to say the one thing that needs to be said and no more. But we are confronted by verses 6 to 29. So I'm not helped. They don't get me out of the difficulty at all. Very well. And so we reject this idea that the answer is a contradiction. So now I come to my second general heading which is I make my blunt assertion that there is no contradiction here. If I reject the proffered explanation that it is a contradiction, well, I'm bound to say that there is no contradiction, and I say so. Well, then, what do I do about the statements? Well, I say this, that they're both true. That the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the doctrine of human responsibility are both true and that the Apostle is stating the two doctrines in this ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans. Indeed, he has already stated the doctrine of human responsibility in the first chapter in verse 20, where he says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's enough. He stated it again more than once in the second chapter. He says that the Jews and the Gentiles are both without excuse. You see, he does it in the case of the Gentiles in chapter 2, verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile 
accusing or else excusing one another. We expounded it at the time, I can't go over it again, but that is what it means. And the Jew, of course, is likewise responsible uh, to the very hilt. Now it is because these two things are true that the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be offered to all. You remember how the apostle in preaching in Athens, you'll find the account in Acts 17, says that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. God commands it. That is an assertion of human responsibility. The gospel is to be offered to all. That is where what is called hyper-Calvinism is so terribly wrong and unscriptural. The gospel is to be offered to all. It is to be preached to all. And the apostles did so. Human responsibility is something that is asserted everywhere in the scripture. And it is asserted side by side with the doctrine of the absolute free sovereignty of God and that salvation is, the enti- is entirely the result of his election. So let me put it like this. This is what the Bible teaches. Election alone accounts for the saved. But non-election does not account for the lost. I want to repeat that. Election alone accounts for the saved. But non-election does not account for the lost. What I mean is this. That no man would be saved were it not that God in a sovereign manner has chosen him. As we've seen abundantly from verse 6 to verse 29. It is God's action alone that saves a man. Why is anybody lost? Is it because he's not elected? No. Now then, that's where human responsibility comes in. Non-election does not account for the lost. What does account then for the lost? What accounts for the lost is their rejection of the gospel. Before that, of course, that the fact that they're in Adam, that they belong to this mass of perdition. We have all sinned in Adam. That's what accounts for the fact that we are lost. And here it is that human responsibility comes in. We then are responsible for our rejection of the gospel. But we are not responsible for our acceptance of it. That is the result of the electing grace of God. So you see what the apostle is doing here is this. In verses 6 to 29 he shows and explains to us why anybody is saved. And that's the sovereign election of God. In these verses, he is showing us why anybody is lost. And the explanation of that is their own responsibility. In other words, the Jews, by their rejection of the gospel, are in a way justifying God for punishing them. In other words, it's very much the same thing as we've seen happening in the case of Pharaoh. God didn't make Pharaoh evil. God didn't make Pharaoh a sinner. He was already that in Adam. What God did was to harden his heart in sin, 
to bring it out, to show it. Do you remember how we saw that so clearly? By his long suffering, he did this. The thing became more evident than it was before. That is his whole argument. Do you remember how it's put like this? In verse 17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's it. And the case of the Jews is exactly the same. They were lost in Adam like everybody else. They have confirmed that by rejecting the gospel and justify therefore God's action in pouring his wrath upon them and in sending them to final destruction. Well now I'm afraid we've got to leave it at that this evening. I want to go on to justify that statement. But let me make it clear as to the point we've arrived at. The apostle, you see, always has got a method. And he knows that these two things have got to be considered. Divine sovereignty and election, human responsibility. And he states both. He taught both. He believed both. And you and I must. There's no contradiction at all. But it depends how you look at these things. If you ask how is any man saved, there's only one answer. It is because God has chosen him. He's proved that to the hilt, 6 to 29. Why is a man lost? A man is lost because he's a sinner. And because he is a willful sinner, and a deliberate sinner, and a proud sinner, and a boastful sinner, and rejects the offer of salvation. That's the other side. There's human responsibility. So, you see, we must be careful how we handle this doctrine of election. If you have ever thought that the doctrine of election means that man is not responsible, you have been entirely wrong. Man is responsible. But the fact that he's responsible doesn't mean that he can save himself. That's what the Apostle's telling us. Now then, I hope to give you the justification for this teaching. God willing, next Friday evening. Now meditate upon this, and meditate upon it in the spirit in which we've looked at this great argument from the very beginning until this point. Look at these two big things, and avoid all these two easy ways of getting out of the difficulty. This is profound truth. It is the truth of God. It is a great mystery, but there it is. That is the teaching of the great apostle at this particular point. Let us pray. O oh Lord our God, we come to Thee again, and we come humbled in Thy presence, realizing Thy greatness, Thy glory, realizing something of our own smallness and fallibility and inability. O oh God, forgive us forever thinking and imagining that we were clever. Forgive us for our easy solutions, which are no solutions. Grant that we may be humbled before thy great and glorious word and the mystery and the marvel of it all. O oh God, teach us to walk carefully and circumspectly. We feel we hear thy voice coming to us commanding us to take the shoes from off our feet, 
to the ground whereon we stand is holy ground. Oh God, forgive us for the many times we have rushed at the mystery and have thought that we could solve it and dissect it. Forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our folly, for our presumption, for our arrogance. And keep us, we pray, the ever humble and as little children in thy presence and before thy word. For then we know that if we humble ourselves, thou wilt lift us up. And where we cannot see and understand by the natural mind, the enlightenment of thy blessed spirit will enable us to enter into the truth. Hear us then, O Lord, and grant us thy blessing as we part from one another this night. Bless us as we go upon our homeward ways. Bless all our loved ones and dear ones, and all who are on our minds and hearts everywhere, and the Israel of God throughout the whole world. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us now this night throughout the remainder of this hour short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage and evermore Amen We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.